most of cancer research today, in contrast to what to what we're what we've defined, is focused on on the gene mutations associated with with the disease. So um, the the concept of personalized medicine in cancer involves the uh, development of drugs that will target specific uh, mutations that are found in various tumors with the hope of, of, of um, correcting the disease. The, pro the problem with that strategy is, is that there are literally thousands, and some people have even estimated millions of mutations in, in tumor cells, uh, which makes uh, the targeting of any one or a group of, of mutations a, a pretty daunting task. And um, most of these so-called targeted therapies uh, come with a significant amount of adverse toxic effects, uh, which I've always found strange that if a personalized medicine is supposed to target and kill cancer cells um, specifically, why, why do the patients become so violently ill as the result of this uh, so-called uh, personalized medicine? It, it appears to me that many of these drugs have a very significant off-target effect uh, on the body as well. Our approach to this disease is basically a non-toxic metabolic approach that targets the uh, metabolic deficiency of the, of the tumor while enhancing the health and vitality of normal cells, a very striking contrast. You can prevent cancer simply by keeping your mitochondria healthy. Uh, and what I mean by that is that with age, your mitochondria uh, get, get uh, inefficient. And this is a natural aging process, so why cancer is more common in older people than younger people. Um, therapeutic fasting is a great way to enhance the, the functionality of the mitochondria to prevent cancer. You will not get cancer if mitochondria are healthy. It's just mitochondria are damaged by a variety of different things in the environment, chemicals, radiation, uh, inflammation, viruses, even inherited gene mutations that damage certain kinds of these mutations will damage the functionality of the mitochondria, thereby leading to inherited forms of cancer. But by and large, we can prevent cancer if we can keep the mitochondria healthy. The ketogenic diet is um, it, it's mostly um, uh, certain parts, the way we define them is a one-to-one, two-to-one, or three-to-one. This means uh, two parts fat to one part protein plus carbohydrate. And the more ketogenic the diet is, the greater the amount of fat. So the, the most, uh, the, the most fat-laden diets would be a four-to-one, four parts fat to one part protein plus carb. Now what these diets will consist of is a variety of of butters and creams and coconut oils and, and these kinds of things, um, which are metabolized to ketone bodies, while keeping the carbohydrate content of the diet uh, very low. The proteins are uh, um, a little bit less than normal, but they're not, they're not terribly restricted. It's the carbohydrates that are, are primarily restricted. Oh, this is interesting. This, you know, how many of us have watched loved ones slowly suffer through rounds of varying degrees of chemotherapy that their doctors were using to try to cure their cancers. And, you know, after a while, those patients, they just had had, had enough. And after a while, you know, they wanted no more treatment and felt that the life, the treatment we gave them was just not, not worth living. Really, really rough stuff. I bet we've all been there at one point in time. Don't we wish we could bring back those loved ones and give them a chance at the kind of treatment that Dr. Thomas Seafried is recommending. And you're about to hear a lot more because he is with us tonight. 
But first, I just before we bring him on, welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton, Creative Director of this Alliance of Medical Professionals and their supporters. And as usual, we have our team of top nurses on already behind the scenes, and they're answering questions that you type into the Q&A throughout the program. I will bring back your many of our questions to the doctors, to Dr. Seafried and our Dr. Paul Merrick, who is here with us tonight also, after they've had a chance to really discuss, you know, the whole idea of cancer as a metabolic disease and not just in treatment options, but also getting into how, what we can all do to prevent it as, as that was a little bit of that in the beginning uh, talk that you heard there. So doctors, I don't want to take up any more time. Please come out here. Welcome, Dr. Seafried. And, you know, when we first told our audience about Dr. Merrick's incredible review of the science behind repurposed medicines that uh, have been working in treating cancers, we mentioned, he mentioned, how eager he was to have you on this program. So, Paul, you know, Tell us all why this particular doctor is so important. Well, he is doctor. He is the metabolic medicine of cancer. You know, it, it's his his book that revolutionized our understanding of cancer. And as Doctor Zeefried said, the current the the current paradigm is that cancer is due to genetic mutations and is a chromosomal disease. However, once you read Dr. Siegfried's book and then his, his, his voluminous publications, you realize that this is probably a terrible mistake and that cancer is most likely a metabolic disease. It's a disease of um, mitochondrial dysfunction and metabolic dysfunction and that the genetic changes are probably secondary to these metabolic changes. And of course, the if you're premise of the, the understanding the disease is wrong, then your treatment is going to be incorrect because you're targeting the wrong treatment. So that's that's somewhat of an overview. You know, Dr. Zeefried is the world expert on this topic. So, you know, with, with that, maybe Dr. Zeefried, you can tell us what, what, you know, tell our audience what you mean by cancer is a metabolic disease. Well, uh, th thank you very much, uh, Dr. Merrick. It's a uh... It's nice to be here and have the opportunity uh, to share with uh, your group uh, the views uh, that I have and actually others, other people have as well on how uh, we recognize cancer as a, as a metabolic disease. Um, you know, this, this starts with the work of Otto Warburg uh, in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And he wrote a seminal review article in 1956, where he kind of encapsulated his strong views uh, on the origin of cancer. Um, we, I and my group, we have followed this for the last um, 20, almost 25 years. Uh, you know, when I first, every we all in biochemistry hear of the name Warburg uh, for various reasons, but it wasn't really clear to me at that time in 2000, what, what this gentleman had done. Um, and I started collecting research in my lab. We, we had been funded by the NIH to study angiogenesis. And um, when at the same time we were doing epilepsy research and every people know that diet therapy, ketogenic diet therapies for epilepsy work re really well in managing seizures. 
but there was an overlap of moving that procedure into into our work on cancer angiogenesis, water-only fasting, and these kinds of things. And it was astonishing to us to see these so-called hallmarks of cancer, angiogenesis, apoptosis, in, uh, dysregulated cell growth, all of these kinds of things massively reduced uh, when we placed these preclinical brain cancer systems on, on these calorie-restricted, restricted ketogenic diets. And then it threw us back into looking very, very carefully at what Otto Warburg had said. And I went through his work very, very carefully and many other uh, works that actually were highly critical of what Warburg had said and um, started to dissect the criticism. Uh, and based on my own research, seeing uh, that the only explanation, the most logical explanation for our findings rested with the view uh, of Warburg. Uh, and I became uh, strongly convinced that this, this guy was right. He said that cancer starts from a, a defective ability of the cell to use oxygen for energy. And it has to be a chronic disruption of this form of energy. It cannot be acute. Acute disruption of energy will kill a cell. And he said that very clearly. And you cannot get a cancer from a dead cell. So it was his view that it was a chronic disruption of the cell to generate energy through oxidative phosphorylation, which is oxygen. And as I'm sitting here talking uh, and you are all listening, uh, we're all breathing. And every breath that we take into our body serves as a receptor for electrons through the electron transport chain, allowing us to produce energy allowing us to focus on the screen, allowing us to hear what I'm saying and allowing me to say what I'm saying. This is all based on oxidative phosphorylation energy. Warburg was very, very clear in saying that these cancer cells don't obtain energy this way. They live, they can obtain energy in the complete absence of oxygen in a hypoxic environment. This was very intriguing to me. And he said, well, if you take a, a rat with a tumor and you inject this rat with cyanide, which is a we all know is a rapid killer, a stopping of oxidative phosphorylation. The rat would die instantly, but the tumor cells live quite, quite. Uh, I wouldn't say normally, but they don't die. And we absolutely tested that in our lab, and we are absolutely showing that these cancer cells can live in very strong hypoxia with only 0.1% oxygen and live in the presence of cyanide. And it became clear. Uh, to us that Warburg was, was correct. What he said, in order for the cancer cell to survive, it must ferment. It must use ancient pathways of energy of fermentation. And as an evolutionary biologist, I know that before oxygen came into the atmosphere 2.5 billion years ago, there was, no, there was no oxygen. But yet we had a number of organisms, mostly unicellular organisms, that grew very rapidly in the absence of oxygen. And they were all using these ancient fermentation pathways uh, that would generate energy, ATP, without oxygen. So it became clear to me uh, that these cancer cells were falling back on these ancient heirloom pathways. They exist in all of our cells, except they play a very minor role, except in cancer. They become major pathways for driving the dysregulated growth of these cells. So we then interrogated these cancer cells massively to figure out what are the fermentable fuels that can keep a cancer cell alive 
in the absence of oxygen. And it turns out it's the sugar glucose that Warburg had clearly said, and it's the amino acid, glutamine. Uh, War unfortunately, Warburg did not know about the, the, the glutaminolysis pathway, a second fermentation pathway that actually is in the mitochondria. A part of this pathway is in the, ox the cell, the organelle that should be generating oxygen through oxphos is actually producing ATP through a uh, amino acid fermentation. And we, we interrogated all the amino acids and glutamine was the predominant one. Yeah, others can do a little bit. In order to keep a cell alive, you have to have fermentation, a cancer cell that is, and you have to have sufficient quantities of the fuel, the logistic fuel source, and the two highest fuels available to the tumor cell are the glucose sugar and the amino acid glutamine. So we were able to clearly show how Warburg was correct, and we have clearly shown the new information that he was not aware of uh, that uh, vindicated, I think, his his original idea. So I, I think that Warburg was correct. He said cancer cells have defective oxphos, therefore they're forced into a fermentation metabolism. And most of the field to this day continues to focus on the glycolysis pathway, but they should also recognize that many of these cancer cancers can survive on glutamine alone uh, with very little glucose. Because So our strategy for managing cancer is not that complicated. We know what the, what, the, what the cancer cell needs to survive, fermentation. What does it ferment? Glu the amino acid glutamine and the, and the sugar glucose. So what we, but they cannot ferment fatty acids. They cannot ferment ketone bodies. So the strategy for managing cancer is transition the entire body over to nutritional ketosis, thereby lowering the blood sugar, which the cancer cells need. They have an absolute requirement for sugar. The rest of our body, except with the exception of erythrocytes, the brain can all transition over to ketone bodies. Heart goes to fatty acids, liver fatty, all the other organs in our system can transition over to fatty acids. Cancer cells cannot do this. And I have direct evidence to support that. So we have, we have found with diet drug cocktails, we can manage cancer effectively without toxicity by simultaneously targeting the two fermentable fuels while transitioning the entire body over to a non-fermentable fuel, which is ketones. And this then allows us to move forward with uh, very effective uh, non-toxic therapies uh, to manage cancer. So that, that's kind of a 25 years of research uh, encapsulated into a short, into a short. <laughs> wow. That, that, that work was music. Thank you. That was an opera. Thank you, Dr. Siegfried. So then obviously, this is a major paradigm change. Instead of using toxic chemotherapeutic drugs, which wipe out your bone marrow and destroy your immune system, you're actually attacking this, the, the cancer with depriving it of, of its fuel. You're starving the cancer cell. So obviously, the one approach is obviously a ketogenic diet. So you, you, you decrease in glucose um, and um, you do decreasing carbohydrate intake and you switching over more towards fatty acid metabolism and making ketones. Uh, the, obviously the advantage is human cells can use ketone bodies, cancer cells can't, that is correct. Yes, that's correct. But I also want to emphasize that um, it's not just a ketogenic diet. In our, in our research, we published the glucose ketone index calculator, 
which is a way to measure the ratio of glucose to ketone bodies in the blood. And we have found that if people can get their GKI, glucose ketone index, down to 2.0 or below, uh, this puts tremendous pressure on tumor cells. So ketogenic diets can do this uh, mainly because you can get your ketones up and your blood sugar down. But you can do the same thing with a Mediterranean diet, a carnivore diet, a, uh, a, a, some plant-based diets. As long as the patient can see that their GKI is 2.0 or below, um, they can do it with a variety of diets. Although we said ketogenic diet, uh, only because it might be a little bit easier and faster to do it that way than to use some of the other diets. As long as the diet is, is nutritionally balanced with the appropriate vitamins and nutrients, if you can get that GKI down, then you know you're putting the, patient, the cancer cells of that patient under tremendous metabolic stress. Um, and then that's where we come in with low doses of various drugs to polo, polo, polish off the survivors. So that, that's dealing with the glucose pathway. What about the glutamine pathway? So for people who are not sure what glutamine is, glutamine is an amino acid. So it's a part of, it makes up proteins. It's one of the more, more common uh, amino acids. And as Dr. Zeefeed was saying, some cancer cells use glutamine as a source of fermentation, a source of fuel. So how do you target, what do you do to, you know, for people out there who have cancer, what can they do to target the glutamine pathway? Yeah, well, this is very, extremely important because people say, always ask me, what can I eat to reduce glutamine? Uh, the, the only, there was a paper by the late uh, George Cahill uh, who ran the Joslin Diabetes Center here in Boston. Um, he, he published a paper showing that if, to lower glutamine with diet, it's really not a diet, it's water-only fasting. After about 20 days of fasting, your blood sugar is really, really low. But we, they also found that uh, blood glutamine also became uh, very, very low. And you know, most people throw their hands up and say, well, I'm not gonna do that. So, uh, um, but there are drugs, like we use 6-deoxynorleucine, which is a, a glutamine type analog, and it binds to multiple glutaminases, the enzyme that would metabolize glutamine to glutamate. Um, the problem with Don is you, you have to know how to use it. As a matter of fact, you really, not, you really have to know how to use all of the different tools that we have in the armamentarium of drugs and procedures against cancer. And if you don't know how to use the tools correctly, the outcome uh, of the treatment will not be as favorable as you might expect. So you're 100% uh, right, Dr. Merrick. If you go after glutamine too aggressively, you can undermine the very attempt of what you're trying to do. The, the issue here is that glutamine is essential for our immune system. Glutamine is essential for the gut. Glutamine is essential for the urea cycle. If you go after glutamine alone with a high dose of a glutamine targeting drug, you might get some therapeutic benefit, but it's not going to be as complete or as efficient as if you were to target glucose and glutamine simultaneously. And you must understand the glutamine must be targeted with kid gloves. We use a pulse strategy. We, we, once we bring the patient or the preclinical system into low glucose, elevated ketones, we then deliver very low doses of glutamine targeting drugs uh, for short periods of time. 
and then take them off. It allows the, it, what it does is paralyzes our immune system only temporarily. And then when you pull it off, we don't kill the immune cell, we kill cancer cells. Cancer cells start to die. Well, there has to be a biological system to pick up the dead ca uh, cancer cells, uh, de the dead cancer bodies. And that's our immune system. So that immune system needs the same fuel that the cancer cell needs. The cancer cell is de absolutely dependent. The normal cells are, if you take away glutamine, they're stunned for a short period of time. Put the glutamine back on, they pick up the dead cancer cells, and then you clear away the dead, and then you come back at them again. It's a very planned strategy. You've got to understand biology, and you've got to understand bio biochemistry, and you have to understand the complete biological weaknesses of the cells that you're killing and the strengths of the cells that we have in our normal system to work against the tumor. It's, it's, a, it's an orchestrated approach to managing cancer without toxicity. So maybe you can talk about your more recent research, which is quite fascinating, the use of mebendazole together with ketosis, because it, the two are absolutely synergistic and additive together. So, yeah. Yeah. so I mean, this is, this is really fascinating. And, and maybe you can just tell us about your, your new research, because I found it absolutely fascinating. Yeah, well, we, were, um, we received support from uh, the UK Childhood Cancer Foundation uh, just before the COVID struck. And uh, we were very fortunate to have support from the United Kingdom because they're very interested in childhood uh, cancer, uh, especially high-grade glioma. Um, so we developed a preclinical uh, pediatric glioma model, essentially using very young mice uh, with uh, implantation of, of metastatic cancer cells. And we were uh, surprised to see that these cancer cells implanted into the brain immediately, very soon, very quickly, moved down the spinal cord into the spinal uh, canal and the, in, infiltrated the spinal cord, producing uh, a phenotype of high-grade glioma, very, very similar to what you see in kids that have high-grade gliomas. And then uh, we used, we knew embendazole, uh, as a matter of fact, in that paper, uh, we showed for the first time that embendazole not only restricts glucose to a certain degree, but also uh, was reducing the glutaminase, glutaminolysis pathway. So it actually has some overlap with targeting both the glycolysis and the glutaminolysis pathway. So when you put the animals in a, a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet with uh, embendazole, we got, really, we got much better results than either the diet by itself or the embendazole by itself. And then, of course, we threw in some Dawn, which is a further powerful restrictor of glutamine. We, we were getting very good results. And at the same time, we, we used this other drug, Davimistat, um, this is a very interesting drug. Uh, it was used to manage pancreatic cancer in humans. Uh, it didn't. It had very poor uh, efficacy in the clinical trials. Uh, unacceptable toxicity and ineffective uh, therapy. Um, but it did. It, it, it's one of its 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 actions is to target alpha ketoglutarate dehydrogenase, which was a key pathway in the glutaminolysis. Uh, pathway, a key, a key enzyme in the glutaminolysis pathway. And we said, wow, this drug should work well. Um, but when we tried it on our preclinical system, it had the same failure uh, that we saw, uh, that, they, that they saw in the human pancreatic uh, pathway, uh, a, a, a clinical trial, the human uh, pancreatic clinical trial. However, when we used Avimistat uh, with membendazole and a restricted ketogenic diet, it was unbelievable. 
this drug took on new power and, and efficacy. And we found out that the ketogenic diet facilitated delivery uh, to the tumor. Uh, it, it, it was a, a, a facilitator in delivering drug uh, directly to the, to the tumors, both embendazole as well as the Vimistat. So uh, this, is, this is the amazing thing. Some of these drugs that are being used in clinical trials and being, and being canned because they don't seem to have effects and they may be too toxic, they actually could be extremely valuable, low, used at very low dosages, uh, along with ketogenic metabolic therapy. So this opens up a whole new vista of how we reevaluate certain drugs that have been proposed. But I think you need to target the two pathways simultaneously, that is the glycolysis and glutaminolysis pathways together, because it's like putting the horse in the barn. If you close the front door, the horse runs out the back door. If you close the back door, he comes out the front door. The, the idea is get the horse in the barn and close both doors, and then you have it uh, concealed. So, so the, this is the whole thing for cancer. If the cancer cells are glycolysis dependent, and you target glutamine, they're gonna remain viable. If, if they're glutamine dependent, you target glycolysis, they're gonna remain viable. You have to shut the two fuels off simultaneously while transitioning the rest of the body to a fuel that normal cells can use. Um, it works. It works on dogs. We have our paper in dogs uh, on mast cell tumor removed. People should look at that. It works in preclinical systems and it works on people. And that's the most important thing. It works on people if done the right way. These tumor cells are checkmated. They don't have, people say, oh, they're gonna be smart, they're adept. No, they're not. We interrogated those things. They have very little capability of doing. So people say, well, why are all these drugs not working? Because you're not, tar you're not targeting the very fuels. So you're, you're treating people with high dose uh, steroids that raise blood sugar, you, you break apart the microenvironment, freeing up massive amounts of glutamine, and then everybody wonders why, why it's not working. It's very clear why it doesn't work. You, you didn't target the two fuels. Tumor cells cannot grow without fermentation, period. What do they ferment? Glucose and glutamine. Are you targeting those two fuels simultaneously? Who is? No one. So that's fascinating. I just want to go back to something you said earlier in terms of preventing cancer. So basically you said that if you have healthy mitochondria, then it's probably the, the most effective way to prevent getting cancer. So what, what interventions would you recommend to keep your mitochondria healthy? Since this is an energy disease, the disease of mitochondria, what, what are interventions that people can do to, to limit their risk of getting cancer? Yeah, excellent question. Uh, you know, we have to look at our ancestral, uh, where we came from as a, as a people, as a species. You know, we evolved uh, during the Paleolithic period. Uh, what was our diet and lifestyle like uh, during, during that period? You know, it was predominantly animals, a lot of exercise. Don't forget, we evolved as omnivores. We could eat anything that walks, crawls, or flies on this planet, including each other. So, um, you know, this is, you have to look back at, at, at our past. Uh, but today, uh, like the, 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 the distinguished uh, humanitarian uh, physician, Albert Schweitzer, studied many uh, tribes uh, living in their traditional ancestral ways in Africa and other places, and found out that cancer was extremely rare. I think he looked at like some 40,000 people and didn't find any, any cancer. And he said, what are these? Well, they're living by their traditional ancestral ways. 
diets that are very low in highly processed carbohydrates, significant amount of, of exercise uh, in their life. And, and uh, we know, as Warburg and I have shown and others, uh, cancer cannot start unless you damage mitochondria, uh, cause them to uh, malfunction. So as I said, in, 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 there's many causes, many initiators of cancer, exposure to chemical carcinogens, uh, exposure to radiation, intermittent hypoxia, chronic inflammation, rare inherited mutations, oncogenic viruses, age. These are all secondary risk factors. The primary risk factor is damage to oxidative phosphorylation chronically. So if you say, well, what can we do to prevent chronic damage to oxidative phosphorylation, look to the ways of the past, consider those ways and become wise. They were not eating high carbohydrates, they were exercising, they were doing all these kinds of things and that significantly reduces your risk. On the other hand, we now know that obesity is replacing smoking as the number one risk factor for developing cancer. It's linked to type two diabetes and all of these other things. So I look at the populations around the world and I'm seeing the obesity epidemic is becoming more and more uh, acute. Uh, what are people doing? Do they not know that obesity provides the, is the stimulus for the majority, for a, a significant risk factor for cancer? If people were really, really, really interested in preventing cancer, we should not have an obesity epidemic. I mean, it's, it's clear. So it's, it's up to individuals to know about this information. Yes. Yeah, so, so the next, you know, I get more recently this question quite, quite often is that there's certain genes that increase your risk, so-called increase your risk of cancer. So that now women are being advised to, you know, screen for the BRCA gene. And if they were, are unfortunate enough to carry this, this gene, you know, to undergo surgery, to have, you know, bilateral mastectomies and have a hysterectomy. So, what do you think about screening for genetic disease? You know, well, I mean, we, we call that kind of a, a, a prophylactic, a surgical mutilation, um, the bottom line. So you're diagnosed with BRCA1 uh, or a number of other what we call inherited risk factors. They're secondary risk factors. I say secondary mainly because we've evaluated all the so-called inherited genetic risk factors that could increase your risk for cancer. And none of them are 100% penetrant. The only way you can say a, a, a risk factor is a primary risk factor is when every person that has that, expresses that risk factor develops the condition, like a Huntington's disease uh, or cystic fibrosis. These are, these are genes that uh, invariably are associated with the phenotype. The highest genetic risk factor that we have seen is the Lee Fraumeni condition, which is a mutation in the P53, uh, the, uh, uh, one of the oxidases in the electron transport chain. That's about an 80, 85 to a percent risk factor. Um, but BRCA1 is down at around 50 uh, percent. BRCA2, BRCA1, BRCA2, all these are down at 50%, maybe 55%. What does that mean? That means that 50% of the women uh, or 45% of the women that have the mutation will never go on to develop the, the condition. The other, the other issue is what does the BRCA, what, how does the BRCA mutation increase the risk for cancer? 
And the answer is it, the, the product of the BRCA gene damages oxidative phosphorylation, making oxidative phosphorylation the prime, the prime initiator of cancer. So how would one be able to reduce the risk of BRCA1 damaging oxidative phosphorylation by using diet and lifestyle issues that would increase oxidative phosphorylation? that would reduce the risk. It doesn't eliminate the risk. That's the choice of the individual that would have the condition. It would be their choice to undergo surgical mutilation or radically change their diet and lifestyle to reduce the risk of BRCA1 or another new, uh, genetic mutation damaging oxidative phosphorylation. And you can do that by water-only fasting calorie-restricted ketogenic diets, and a variety of other things. Keep your GKI low. My good friend, Dominic Diagostino, is always, he's like a paleolithic man in today's society. He is always in, in, in ketosis. I would suggest that I, I'm not a physician. I can't treat patients, and I can't tell them what to do or not to do. But I can say that if you're in nutritional ketosis with a GKI monitor, glucose ketone index monitor, uh, your, your risk may be significantly lower. Do we, is that proven? No. Would studies be needed to do, to prove that? Yes. It's just, I'm just telling you what I think. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because, you know, women who get this diagnosis, it's almost like a death sentence and they're not given any option. So I think it should be a personal choice that women, firstly, if you go undergo genetic testing, you have to realize the the, the high stakes game that you're playing. And if you do unfortunately have this have this gene, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to undergo, you know, this mutilating surgery. There are options. You know, obviously there, there aren't really good prospective studies, but it should these women should be given the option that the, these the, the this is an alternative to you know having this radical surgical intervention. I have to jump in here now. I'm a woman. Okay. And I have friends who have faced this and I, you know, is anybody telling them this? And, you know, we have a question. One of the questions uh, from our audience said uh, from Charles says, are there any clinics that follow the protocol that, that you are describing uh, Dr. Seafried? Are, are there any places where people can get this kind of, information leap from the lab into the the populace because this is important yeah well that's you know the, the problem is there's many many problems um you know i've had so many people contact me who have run to their major major hospital uh, oncology centers and get slapped down uh, saying uh, there's no evidence that glucose drives cancer. Um, most of the stuff you can't believe because there's no clinical trials. The, the issue is those are state those are superficial statements that speak to a lack of knowledge. Um, they're not looking at the science. They need to look at the science. The cancer cell cannot grow without fermentation. Period. It's been overwhelmingly showed by myself, Warburg, and many many others. Okay. So to say that glucose and fermentation has nothing to do with cancer is just absurd. And today's, why are these folks not, do they not know this? And I think it has to come from the fact that they're not trained. The med, listen, the National Cancer Institute on their website says cancer is a genetic disease, period. Mutations cause cancer. Why are you worrying about glucose? 
Glucose has nothing to do with cancer because it is caused by genetic mutations. And we have shown over and over again that the mutations are the result of the damaged mitochondria and respiration through I, I got it. Unbelievable. Well, so it's the theory. See, the question you ask is a really good question. Yeah. And that's the, the reason Dr. Ziefried is doing this research. It's the reason he wrote the book. And it's the reason that I wrote our cancer monograph, because just to try and educate patients and as importantly to educate doctors, because most of them, if not all of them, do not understand the what Dr. Ziefried is saying. This is a metabolic disease and you need to control it metabolically. And so that's why we on our new mission. I mean, right. just, just this just is good. Few, Listen, but just a few doctors unaware. No, a patient was told by her oncologist, you can eat whatever you want to have milkshakes, have candy, have chocolates, because diet has nothing to do with cancer. This was two days ago. And is this that ignorance, Paul? You know more about this, perhaps as an MD and having been in the system. What I've seen over the last three years makes me ask this question. Is it because the doctors don't know that the doctors are not reading Dr. Seafried's information or are there financial incentives in doing the stuff that the oncologists do? Yeah, you've just answered the question with your question. It's both. I think mostly doctors are ignorant and there's enormous financial incentive for them to remain ignorant because metabolic therapies, you can't, it's not a patent. Dr. Dr. Zifri doesn't have a patent on a ketogenic diet. So no one is going to make money by advert, you know, by recommending a metabolic approach. Whereas obviously, as we know, oncology drugs are exceedingly expensive. It's a very big business. So I think uh, physicians are ignorant. Um, uh, oncologists are ignorant because they don't know. And I think there's little incentive for them to know the truth. And hospital systems aren't ignorant. They are very well aware of what's going on on the bottom line. And if you do a certain treatment, do you get money back, as we've seen with COVID? So, yeah, you, you, you've, you've, hit, you've, you've, you've hit the nail on the head, you know. And so that, that's why, that's why you know, Dr. Ziefried is doing what he's doing. And that's why I think his work is just so seminal and so important because it, it changes the whole philosophy, the whole fundamental narrative that cancer is, is a metabolic disease. It's not a genetic mutation chromosomal disease. And once you recognize that, then it changes your fundamental approach to preventing cancer and treating cancer. And that's that's the mission that we're on. You're going to love this because we have a comment from Dr. Sheila Fury, who says, I fasted and did strict keto during chemo. No support from oncologist, but he was amazed at how fast the tumor regressed. Fasting was very helpful to reduce not only the side effects from the chemo, but to kill the cancer from one of our good doctors. This and is encouraging. This is absolutely true. I mean, there's really good data. Dr. Seafried can support this, that metabolic therapy and ketosis acts 
additively and synergistically with conventional chemotherapy. So what, what it allows you to do is reduce the dose of these toxic chemicals, and it allows them to be more effective. So patients, so it's not an all or one phenomenon. So patients, there are some cancers that do respond to chemo. So what we recommend is that it's not an all or one. If is if you if you're having chemotherapy, then you should at the simultaneously at the same time undergo metabolic therapy. Would you agree with that, Doctor Seafried? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, we have to we have to go. I, I, I you know, I'm not. I know we have to go in that direction because the 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 paradigm change would be too radical um, if we if we did what I say or what, the way I. So we have to have this hybrid thing. And then we go from pure what we're doing today with over 1600 people a day dying, dying from cancer in the United States, over 1600 people a day, um, a million and five uh, diagnosed with cancer every day uh, or every year and uh, 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 you know all this. So you go and you say, okay, maybe, maybe we're a little bit right and let's do some hybrid thing. And all of a sudden you say, just like the, 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 the physician who just uh, called in to say that the fasting together, oh, that's, that's expected. Uh, now you say, well, okay, we're getting really, really good results if we use chemo and metabolic therapy. And then the, their eyes are gonna open and they're gonna say, wow, what if we do metabolic therapy without the toxic chemical completely? And that's where I am. So, but I understand the system has to make this adjustment. And the adjustment is the hybrid thing for a while until people realize that it's all metabolic. And then by that time, we're gonna have new di uh, diet drug cocktails that will make this a very manageable disease. But you have to realize a lot of the management falls now for the first time on the shoulders of the patient. The patient must be an active participant in the management of their disease. They can use prayer, they can use meditation, they can use whatever it is, but with metabolic therapy and those other add-ons, they will achieve a level of success not seen today for the majority of people using standards of care. Wow. Is the American Cancer Society talking to you or interested in talking to you or an oncological society? Is anybody willing to even consider the half and half approach of including this in the current treatment to make the... Uh, the, the chemo better? Um, well, I don't know. You have to ask them. I think they're, they're the ones you should ask. You know, okay. do, they, do they even the know about no. it? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I mean, they certainly haven't run to me with any, with anything, uh, right. but they might, I think a lot of people know what I'm saying. I, I think Dr. Merrick, there's a lot of folks out there. The, the, the thing, you know, why I say what I say is because I do the, the experiments in my lab. I mean, we're running these experiments day and night uh, on, on drug diet cocktails. Uh, my students are, are seeing uh, this and they say, whoa, I, this is really impressive. I didn't know you could do that. You know, and I think the patient and the, the movie that's coming out, the documentary on the cancer revolution uh, is now collecting uh, significant numbers of these so-called terminal, uh, once considered terminal cancer patients. And they're doing very, very well, the majority of them. Uh, they're living far beyond their predicted uh, time on the planet, and uh, they're they're starting to voice their their uh, ideas, just like the folk, the person that just emailed in today. I mean, there's a there's a stronger and stronger voice, and the change will come 
from the patients. It will not come from the top medical schools. You must understand that. It's a patient-driven change because I don't see MD Anderson, Dana-Farber, Sloan Kettering, I don't see them changing anytime soon. And one of the problems was in 1984, the National Cancer Institute invited in Big Pharma into the, uh, the labs of the cancer. So Big Pharma has been integrated with the help of developing new drugs for cancer. The, pro the problem is these drugs are all based on the somatic mutation theory of cancer, which has now been undermined. So it makes no sense to continue to produce drugs that are based on a flawed theory. It's never going to produce the outcome that you would have expected. So clearly, as Dr. Merrick says, until the paradigm changes and we change the theory under which the cancer, the, this disorder is, is viewed, we are not going to get the major kinds of changes that I speak about or Dr. Merrick speaks about. Wow. Okay. Are you... Both ready for some questions We're from ready our for audience? Some questions, Betsy, yeah. Oh, yeah, we've got some good ones. I have one for you, Dr. Merrick, uh, from Pamela. She wants to know, uh, you have included doxycycline in the cancer protocol, the options. Doesn't this destroy the gut biome? Can you elaborate on that? So that is a good question. It is one of those repurposed drugs that has been shown to have efficacy in in. It is as part of the metabolic syndrome. So what we do recommend is, so it's not on the top of the list, it is on the list. Unfortunately, being an antibiotic, it does interfere with the microbiome. And there's a, the microbiome plays a really important role uh, having a normal microbiome in, 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 in cancer. So we do recommend intermittent use of doxycycline. Uh, I don't know, Dr. Zifri, do you have any thoughts on doxycycline? Uh, no, unfortunately, I haven't. I haven't really tested it uh, in our system, so I really, I don't like to speak about things that I haven't really investigated myself. So I, I can't really speak to that. Okay, well, that was a good answer. Anyway, Kathleen wants to know: Do you have thoughts on the keto diet, either one of you, uh, for people with gallbladder issues? Yeah, I think that's an important point. I, I can't really speak. Too much to that. You, you, the important issue to remember is that any diet that is is used, it always has to be in, in, in calorie restricted amounts. And uh, as I always said, the, the the most powerful way is water only fasting. The problem is for many folks, it's not it's not easy. So um, that's why we do small amounts of zero carb diet for uh, ten days to two weeks, and then jump into water only fasting. Uh, what it does is it lowers blood sugar and elevates ketones. I don't think there's been enough uh, clinical work on gallbladder patients uh, to determine uh, what would be the best course of medical uh, preparedness for those folks. I, 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 I just know uh, we always have caveats. We always have to recognize the outliers and be careful about that. Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that somebody who has had a cholecystectomy or gallbladder disease should do it slowly and they should test their tolerance because I think the patient serves as the best control. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so, so that they can do it slowly, you know, get their, you know, decrease the carbohydrates. So I would do it slowly in terms of the degree of carbohydrate restriction and then test, test how they do. Um, and that's probably the best way to do it because Humans, human can, humans can survive with zero carbohydrates. We, we have, 
we have we do not have a need to take carbohydrates and most western diets have far excess amounts of, of processed carbohydrates and glucose oh, yeah. so i think the first step would be to decrease the carbohydrate intake uh, and you know assess their their tolerance here's a good question for you both from reynold I am very good at 40 hour fasting, but now I find out, it doesn't say from whom, but I find out that it is not good for people with cancer. Please explain this more fully. I don't know where he got that information from. I've never seen that. Why would it be, uh, why would it be problematic for someone? Uh, listen, most people when they're first diagnosed for, with cancer are usually um, surprised that they have cancer. Um, they're usually now someone who would be beat up by the system, um, drugs and radiation in their body would be torn apart. Uh, that would be hard. But I, I don't know. Um, I mean, we, we see many cancer patients first diagnosed. They can do uh, Guy Tannenbaum and many others have 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 reported long water only fasts, seven, uh, 17, 20 days um, doing really well. So I, I, I don't I have not come across any articles, if that person would please send me the articles so I could examine the data. I, I, we, we, we don't see that. I, I haven't seen that, so I can't really speak to it. Yeah, Betsy, I would agree with Dr. Seafried. I don't think there's any data suggesting that fasting is, 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 is harmful with cancer. And it's particularly useful in patients undergoing chemotherapy. Okay. Uh, as, as, as the person, as Dr. Fury um, just, just elucidated on her own experience. So, you know, fasting is potentiates the effect of chemotherapy. So I don't see any contraindication at all. If, if, if patients can do it and can tolerate it, I think that's fine. I don't think it's contraindicated in any way. Good to know. Now, Rebecca wants to know, is what he, Dr. Seafried, is describing applicable to all cancers, blood cancers too? Yeah, yeah well, I, I just... Uh... We published a paper in iScience uh, where I went and looked at all the major cancers, including the blood cancers, CCL, AML, uh, the variety of lymphomas and these kinds of things. And, and I have not yet found a cancer that has normal content, structure and function of mitochondria, meaning that the blood cancers are like the other cancers in, in requiring a fermentation. And blood cancers, uh, especially those that are derived from the immune system, um, uh, are dependent on glutamine heavily. So a, tar a simultaneous targeting of glucose and glutamine should be just as effective for blood cancer as it would be for lung, colon, breast, and the, and, and the rest of the cancers that, that we have looked at. You know, one of the more interesting things is, is the metastatic, the cancer that metastasizes, the cell that, that breaks away and spreads to other organs, is a of an immune cell itself. It's a macrophage. So we went through all the major human cancers and every one of them that we could find has characteristics of macrophage markers, which means that it's part of the immune system. So we went back and examined the biology of macrophages and they are heavily glutamine consumers to do what they do. So uh, we can kill metastatic cells, which are considered the the death sentence for the patient yeah. uh, by combining glutamine targeting drugs with glucose targeting drugs under nutritional therapeutic ketosis. It yeah. seems like we can't find any cancer that can survive. So this is another dangerous, very dangerous uh, finding. 
that uh, when you hear TV ads saying, oh, we have a therapy for your specific cancer, it's the same. Our, our, what we know is that all the major cancers have the same problem. They're fermenters, blood cancer, brain cancer, colon cancer. So you can manage the whole slug of them uh, with, so a doesn't, singular, with a singular approach. It doesn't matter where they live. It's the same thing. Yeah, they, we checked it out. We looked at all the biology. So Betty, I think what Dr. Siegfried said is just so important is that the Warburg effect, the characteristics of anaerobic metabolism is characteristic of all cancer cells. And so this that's what makes this such a enticing therapy because it seems to be a characteristic of all cancer cells have this phenomenon of abnormal glucose metabolism. And so that's why this therapy applies to all kinds of cancers. You know, I have, I have a question. Warburg was active in the 1920s, about then? 30s, 40s, up through uh, his last major papers were in the early 1960s. It's now 2027. What happened? Why, uh, why, did the, why did he disappear? Because Watson and Crick discovered the structure of the DNA. And um, uh, scientists are like, many of them are like lemmings. And we, we uh, saw, uh, biologists uh, always had an inferiority complex to the physicists. Physics was the pure science. Uh, you were considered uh, a not a, a real thinker uh, of, of natural ways unless you were a physicist, because they'd always claim biologists are always uh, uh, messing around in the protoplasmic mud. They were always, it was always uh, uh, subjective, uh, it was always ambiguous. And then when Watson and Crick discovered that this quantitative way of looking at gene expression profiles, it brought us back into a, a, into a, a, a relevance, uh, a quantitative relevance. And this was a, a major bolt of, of excitement to the field. And then they found that there were mutations in the DNA in cancer cells. And this then led to the massive uh, infusion of money and energy into looking at cancer genomes and seeing thousands and thousands of mutations. When, when we, we now know from our work and others that the damaged oxidative phosphorylation creates ROS, reactive oxygen species, which are carcinogenic and mutagenic. So uh, all of those wonderful mutations that we've spent billions of dollars on trying to find cancer genome projects, they're all downstream epiphenomena of the damage to oxidative phosphorylation. So it's gonna, it takes about 50 or 60 years for the field to write itself and no, come back on people. track. And there's the answer to the question. Okay, we've got, we've got to get a few more in here, a few more people. Okay, Dawn wants to know, are some cancers of fungal origin? Uh, let's look at that in a little bit more um, detailed way. If you have a fungal, what does fungal infections do? It creates inflammation. What does inflammation do? It creates damage to oxidative phosphorylation. But cancer is not a fungus. A fungus is a totally different species, a different organism than, than cancer. However, why people make the mistake of saying cancer is a fungus is because the metabolism of fungi, certain kinds of parasites, actually more parasites than fungi, that um, have a similar energy metabolism. So uh, fungi, fungal infections can cause inflammation which can then lead to a formation of cancer. Parasites have very similar energy metabolism in cancer. So uh, that's why embendazole, an anti-parasitic drug, can kill, can kill worms 
but it also can kill tumor cells. And it does it in a, in a, in a very interesting way. So that's what we're, we're, we're looking at. And I, and I think Dr. Merrick said this. I mean, certain of these parasite medications um, can work together with, uh, with various diet. It's part of the diet drug cocktail situation anyway. Coming back to the question of who can people go to, because we have a lot of people listening and they have loved ones who've been diagnosed. And is that, okay, they should consult an integrative oncologist for personal treatment plans that hopefully will give some help and include some of this information. Is that what we have, because obviously we can't here treat individual cases. This is, that's not what we do. We're just education. But is that the right term? Go to an integrative oncologist? Well, you know, in my opinion, um, the integrative oncologist would be limited in doing what they do. Um, you have to be careful. There's a standard of care uh, controlled. Uh, and yeah. if, if you don't do the standard of care, you could lose your license, um, which is absurd because the, the, uh, the standard of care uh, was only the, the, in a way that you could improve the outcome of a patient. It should not have been written in granite. And it has to be flexible to know uh, what, what can be used. Um, yeah, uh, the, the drug that I think is extremely powerful is uh, 6-deoxynorleucine, which is Dawn. And it's not approved by the Food and Drug Administration. However, it was used on little kids with leukemia and it was used on cancer patients in the past but was considered too toxic and ineffective. And of course, because they didn't target glucose at the same time, they didn't use it in the right doses. They didn't know how to use the tool, so they didn't approve it. It should be approved. Why are they approving these extremely expensive and toxic immunotherapies, which are far less effective than this simple repurpose, this drug Don, which is a glutamine inhibitor? So uh, if anybody, if the people want to get involved, have them ask their senators and congressmen a right to try. You know, uh, uh, why is that not approved? They approve all this other crazy stuff and they don't approve a drug that, that actually could work. I mean, give me a break. Did you ever hear of ivermectin? Uh, no. That's <laughs> an apparent, yeah, but you know, that became politicized. Yeah. Whenever you take anything that's politicized, people go into a, a, a frenzy about it. And, 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 and politicians should not politicize metabolic approaches, period. What do they know? Do they know anything about the metabolic <laughs> pathways that are involved with these things? I don't think so. No, but they, well, uh, Marsha would like to know, why are young thin people getting cancer now? Well, being thin doesn't mean you're healthy, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, well, I mean, we, we know obesity is a problem. So yeah. then you would think, well, okay, if they're thin, you know, they, then, then um, they ought to be eating the right things. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, no, um, that's not true. Uh, Shelton showed in many cases, there were thin people. They, they can't, they also have met, uh, imbalance of metabolic homeostasis. You have to look at their blood work. You have to look at their overall health and the whole spectrum of their, of their situation. And sometimes these thin people are just as much out of metabolic homeostasis as some obese people, but in sometimes different directions. We've hit the top of the hour, but we have two more questions. Can we? Can you guys stay on? Yes. Yeah. All sure. Right. All right. Kayla would like to know how about estrogen-dependent cancers? Are they still metabolic dysfunction? Yeah, absolutely. Cancer cells cannot eat estrogens. 
um, uh, they can't, estrogens can facilitate uh, energy, but they, the cancer cell does not eat estrogen. It eats only glucose and glutamine. So estrogens can facilitate the use of glucose and glutamine. But if you take away glucose and glutamine, estrogens will be, they don't do anything or they'll be, have very little, very little effect. And we have a final question for uh, Dr. Merrick's monograph from Michelle, who says, I know there's a difference between glutamine, glutamine and glutamate. The doctors are referring to both. Please clarify whether both present the same problem in preventing cancer, or either one of you, whoever. Dr. Zeefried, you want to take that one? Yeah, well, I mean, glutamine is metabolized to glutamate, okay? Oh. So um, glut glutamate uh, is oftentimes dumped, at least in the brain it is. It's dumped into the mic. Now, listen, this is how bad it is for brain cancer. Um, you have to realize that in, in the brain, we have a glutamine glutamate cycle that keeps our neurotransmitters in check. Glutamate, glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. It allows signals to be passed from one neuron to the next. Has to be regulated in very tight control because if there's too much glutamate, it causes excitotoxicity and kills neurons. Now, when we treat the brain cancer patient with radiation, we break apart the glutamine glutamate cycle. So massive amounts of glutamine are released. Glutamate comes out, causes massive neuronal death, excitation, frees up ma massive amounts of more glutamine because the astrocytes take up the glutamate, convert it back into glutamine and, and the cancer cells are sucking down this. So um, glutamate in the brain is an excitatory neurotransmitter. Uh, a lot of times outside the brain, it's simply dumped. Uh, because the, 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 it's, it's a byproduct of glutamine metabolism. So it's, again, it comes back to glutamine. As I said, in brain cancer, the worst thing you can do to a brain cancer patient is irradiate them. That leads to the rapid demise of the patient. So when you see all these poor GBM patients, glioblastoma patients die, and they all say, oh, they die quick. President Biden's son, Bo, Teddy Kennedy, John McCain, numerous others are all dead within two or three years at the most. That's, that's largely created by the treatment that those folks received. Nothing could more, be more insane than treating GBM patients to, under the standard of care. Uh, the, great, the, the human brain should never be a rate of freeze up massive amounts of the two fuels needed to drive the recurrent tumor. This explains why very few people ex, uh, die. The patient that we had, Pablo Kelly, never took radiation chemo and he's alive now nine years out with a glioblastoma. It's still there, he wasn't cured, but he didn't, it didn't kill him. It's more of an indolent tumor now. Wow. Wow. I'm glad we're getting this out. I haven't seen that anywhere else. Have you, Paul? I mean- we No, we published it. We published the paper. Oh, you did? Oh, oh, yeah, I don't read the right no, no, stuff. No. I don't say anything unless I publish stuff. If people think they want to test what I'm- Go out and read our papers. You get all the, the nitty gritty details of everything I'm saying. Well, Paul reads all the scientific stuff. Pierre reads all the scientific stuff. And I read a little bit of it, but I'm not a doctor. Yeah. I'd like to see it out in the major media. Well, that was one of the things that Peter Atia was criticizing me. He says, oh, if you're so right, why don't we have anybody surviving? Well, I published a paper based on the poking of, 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 of Atia. So I said, okay, here it is. Now, what are you going to say? Oh, no, hush up. Everybody shuts up. They don't want to talk about it. Well, Wow. Betsy, wow, that yeah. was really good. I, I just want to thank Dr. Zeefried for coming on and for spending time with us. It, it's such a it's such an interesting subject, and he's such a world expert. And 
we would we were delighted to have you on and we certainly will have you back again so thank you thank you thank you and both of you paul and uh we're going to say a few nice things about you again later uh i have a few announcements at the end but uh, we just thank you for your time uh for your talent and uh, for all that you are doing and so what what an exciting uh amount of work and what an exciting field you're in. We've just got to uh, help you get more out there so that people know it. We're, we're into, the FLCCC is into trying to empower people to know what possibilities there are. And uh, as we study them, you know, we're trying to get it out there. So I'm delighted, just delighted to learn this. And yeah, great to have you back. Oh, thank you all, all the time with Paul but and, and Pierre, but thank you so, so very much. Folks, we've got a few announcements. Um, so, you know, what, what a night this has been with a compelling topic. And there's, there's so much to learn, but we need to tell you, you know, um, speaking of learning, mark your calendars. We are announcing here for the first time that the third FLCCC Educational Conference is coming up. It will be taking place February 2nd through 4th, 2024 in Phoenix, Arizona. Everybody wanted it to be in Phoenix. It's going to be in Phoenix. So enter your email at flccc.net forward slash conference to be notified as soon as more details are available. Yes, we're going to Phoenix in February, right at the beginning. All right. Now, you didn't know while you have your calendars out that Saturday, July 29th is also known as World Ivermectin Day. Well, we will be celebrating with a week of videos, fun facts, products like last week's It's For My Horse t-shirt, patient testimonials, and more. So follow us on our social channels and check our website for posts next week. And please make sure to share and retweet to help spread awareness about this incredible medicine. You can learn more at worldivermectinday.org. All right. As always, the lovely Dr. Bean has a new episode of Long Story Short. This one looks at how clotting in patients with severe COVID may be an immune pathology and how, in Dr. Bean's expert opinion, this mechanism may also be responsible for the clotting found in patients with long COVID and those suffering from vaccine injuries. Scary stuff, yep, but important. You can watch it now on FLCCC's Odyssey and Rumble channels or at flccc.net forward slash Dr. Bean. Ah, new infographics. Do we ever have some cool and helpful infographics for you? Curious about serapeptase or natokinase or lumbrokinase? Don't know what they are and want to find out? Well, you can learn all about them now with these helpful videos available on our website under tools and guides. So check them out. And with that, with that we have to call up the clever nurse, our clinical advisor, a CRNA. In fact, she's responsible for creating all of our helpful infographics. Christina Morris, come on out here and let's see the other nurses that you've got with you tonight who've been busy answering questions. Welcome, welcome. Thank you, thank you for all of you. We've got Stephanie Lansiki and Samantha Hanks and of course, Christina. 
Um, how'd it go tonight? Were you able to answer many questions or were people just couldn't couldn't get away from listening to the to this good discussion? We had a good amount of questions that related to the cancer therapy. There were a lot of personal questions that we couldn't answer. We got to about half of them. Um, and then some of them were asked uh, to the panelists. So I think we did the best we could do tonight. Yeah, well, it's a little hard. We can't do doctoring this way, but we can we can guide people in directions and you are the right people. You have the training and we're delighted and thank you so much. And you do such cool stuff on those videos. It's just wonderful. So thank you all for volunteering your time and helping everybody else. What a, what a good looking group too. All right, folks, we have something else special. The humanitarian physician of the year award, just two more announcements. And this one is just wonderful. The priority. Health Academy named our own Dr. Paul Merrick, Humanitarian Physician of the Year. Each year, the Academy awards an outstanding physician for his or her work upholding the principles of medicine, ethics, and patient advocacy. Thank you, PHA, and thank you, Dr. Merrick, for your tireless dedication to all. So... Now, oh, I got to also mention we have, you know, FLCCC's news capsule is just needs a vacation. So all of you need to know that this marvelous capsule that you love, what a great voice it has, uh, is somewhere tropical at the moment, I think, or heading there. And anyway, but it will recover from this much needed break. It'll come out from under the palm trees and be back next week. So stay tuned for the next capsule will be on Sunday, July 29th. Now then, finally, we thank you, all of you, for your dedication, your encouragement and support, and for sharing your life-saving protocols, our life-saving protocols with friends and family, and helping to save lives and to spread hope. We could not do this without you. That's absolutely true. And we are forever grateful to you. It's been tough, you know, really tough at times for our good doctors. We are going to leave you tonight. Now, we will be back here next week. Don't worry. We'll be back. But we leave you tonight with this recent video of our Dr. Corey on Brett Weinstein's Dark Horse podcast talking about the challenges. Watch. Well, I think I think we both, uh, you know, took some heavy fire in our own domains. I almost, not even almost, I feel worse for people like Paul Merrick, who, mm. um, you know, is a colleague of yours, who I didn't know until you pointed me in his direction. But, you know, you clearly have, you, you are motivated by your anger at what was done to to patients and to citizens during the pandemic. And it activates the fighter in you. And yeah. you and I are a little different in this way, but I have a similar reaction to it. Guys like Paul Merrick, I feel, you know, this was a good doctor who, mm -hmm. he was not supposed to be thrust onto the front line of some uh, battle in which he would be accused of all kinds of vile things, right? This was a, yep. a guy who cared deeply about his patients and he needed to be left alone to take care of them. Oh. Um, so as bad as what happened to you and me is, I feel worse for people who didn't train for it. Yeah. You know, I like kind of, you almost contrasted me and Paul, and I think it actually would be a fair, con like, 
you know, I fight with my fists and he fights with his heart, you know, and he, he's really, you know, he, he I, th- I think he has a lot of sadness and I, he has, I think we have both have a lot of anger, but it, yeah, I think he's more, yeah, sad and tender.